They are shot in Paraguay, they are produced in Paraguay, acted by Paraguayans. Welcome to the Flick Club! I'm Garry. My co-host is Henrik. How are you, motherfucker? I'm motherfucker. Pretty well, pretty well. All, all, all motherfucking cons- being considered. This is the motherfucking podcast where one goes around the world in 200 films and never manages to touch on South America. Yeah. We, we've been there once before, and we try to fix the SA, or South America, quota here, little by little, if, if Henrik is willing. I've been, like, I, I have to come clean and confess, I've been somewhat hesitant to actually pull off this stunt. Not because of South America, not because today's country in question, but simply because I, I've been somewhat lukewarm to the idea of... of what what is going to be today's episode, which is us taking a country axe and choosing like top three IMDb rated movies from from the given country and and watching through those. My reasoning for for my hesitation has always been been that I've been somewhat suspicious of exactly how clear of a picture of a theme you can find using this method. Like, if you choose one director, you can obviously look at his filmography, his body of work, and you can try to analyze what type of dude this director is. Or if you choose a theme, and choose your movies according to the said theme, well, then obviously you have a theme to talk about in your episode. But with going with this, we take three highest rated movies from somewhere. It's going to mean that well, necessary that the genres, the directors, the themes that are being approached, they don't stay consistent in the movies. They could be all over the place, which has kept me quite careful with 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 trying trying this stunt. But well, today with today's episode standing, I must confess that uh, well, I have been wrong and I stand corrected. All right, interesting, interesting. <clears throat> I've been uh, I've been dreading of this idea as well, but I wanted to take this tour. We've been very we've been very experimental lately with our themes, to say the least, I guess. And uh, I thought that well, this was an idea that was thrown around by our ex-co-host Zach, and uh, I didn't really properly warm up to the idea because of I was afraid of that, but. As you said, yeah, there's always the risk that there's going to be just way too much of different genres and it just doesn't seem to gel so well together. On the other hand, this could be a great gateway, the gateway drug, if you will, to, to, the, to the country's movies and uh, how the country presents itself and kind of like an access package. Like the, Here's your starter package to Paraguay and... Maybe via this experiment you and experience, then you are more willing to explore more and you understand more. You know, I, I guess you were reading a little bit of this and that. And Paraguay, to begin with, it's a country that 
um, shamefully, can't say I knew really nothing about <laughs> prior to this episode. <laughs> yeah, what, what's your experience with Paraguay? I actually have exactly the same experience. Paraguay is one of the countries that usually us Finns are not that concerned about. We like our case usually lies in in the U, the typical suspects. Of course, our our like Nordic country brethren, Russia for obvious reasons, us us sharing some some borderland with them, and then the the usual usual European countries and America. And that's that's about it. Like when it comes to Paraguay, when it comes to Venezuela, when it comes to well, Indonesia, what have you? Usually, there are countries that, well, well, the Finnish perspective just does not pay any close eye to, unless there is some extra special, most of them are not, you know, a negative, massive upheaval going on that would somehow, for some reason, pique our interest. Yeah, and it would might take like a like a bigger bit of an extra effort to 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 put your head in the direction of Paraguay. And well, I'm happy that we're doing this episode now. We're much much wiser in this podcast. Well, we are from Finland. If you haven't guessed, if you haven't seen our show notes, and uh, yeah, we have dabbled a little bit of filmmaking, and Henrik has been doing well, God knows what the hell music, music videos. And, uh, <laughs> even even I don't know what what I have been doing or what I'm going to do or what I'm doing at the moment. But I do know that I still have my pants on, so that's something. <laughs> I've been mainly in, in some TV productions, but that was already. A really, really long time ago in a galaxy universe far, far away. Uh, I was kind of part of the, some of the more, more mo- well-seen, more consumed TV at the time. So it was interesting from a little company that has grown a, a little bit since then. But anyway, we're here to talk about Paraguay and we usually have this kind of a cohesive theme. Now it's a kind of an experiment. Let's see how this goes. And at the end of the episode, we have this quickies section where we just go point by point, raise some different questions about the movies that we've seen in this episode and and kind of kind of wrap it all up and then we finally exit the lab for your listening pleasure. Uh, yeah, any housekeeping or let's just get to it. Well, let's just get into it. Yeah, or not really. Let's talk about Paraguay a little bit for our listeners because where is Paraguay, first of all? It's in the it's bang on in the middle of South America, at least when I look at the map. I don't know like geographically exactly, but uh, yeah. yeah. And it's a landlocked country in in South America, bordered by Argentina, Brazil, Bolivia. Do you have something to add? <laughs> <laughs> all all, all well, well-known first-world countries. Uh, yeah, there there has been a lot of um, well, there has been a lot of war between these countries. I'm not taking any sides in this matter, but um, yeah, they do have river access through to the Atlantic Ocean, uh, apparently via Brazil. There, there is anyway a crisscrossing uh, river that goes all the way to the Atlantic, and a population of about seven million, almost similar to Finland. We have. 5.4, 5.5, whatever it is today, exactly, 
and uh, 3 million of these people live in the capital Asuncion. Uh, Spaniards came in the area and converted the Guarani people to the Spanish ways a long, long time ago. And after the independence from Spain in the 19th century, authoritarian nationalists and uh, isolationist uh, protectionist governments ruled. And this ended in the Paraguayan War in 1864 to 1870. About half of the population of Paraguay died. And 25 to 33% of land was seized to Argentina, Brazil and Uruguay. Then there was Chaco War from 1932 to 1935 against Bolivia. Paraguay prevailed. Then there was a slew of military dictatorships. And Alfredo Stroessner must be the most famous one of those. And finally, after near to 40 years of rule... He was ousted with the help of military in a military coup in 1989. And now Paraguay has been since then a democratic, developing country. Still some problems in the politics, no doubt. And the the modern Guarani language has prevailed and is spoken in various dialects with Spanish. So if I understand correctly, it's it's kind of like a... Almost like a 50-50 split in uh, the Spanish and Guarani speaking. And and they seem to mix it interchangeably when speaking. So it's very interesting. So so Guarani is... It has elements of Spanish. It has history with Spanish. And has some mix and history from from the times when uh, there were different tribes and people speaking different languages in Spain and they all coalesced and... uh, now it is the Guarani that we know today. World's happiest place, according to 2017 Positive Experience Index, despite all of these problems. There's a lot of crime still and uh, poverty. But why are we watching these films now, Henrik? Well, is there any reason why we shouldn't be watching these films? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I honestly don't know. Like, we, we both already mentioned that we were kind of hesitant with with doing this and, and making this type of episode. And I don't actually know what changed, at least what changed for me to finally actually show green light for for us to... to so going with, with Paraguayan and cinema. Yeah, why not? This was just something that came to my mind. Okay. Let's think of a country from South America. Paraguay. Perfect. <laughs> Don't know anything. Let's find out. Uh, the films we'll watch today are selected at though with a kind of a as careful and as, as logical system that I could think of. Uh, they are shot in Paraguay. They are produced in Paraguay, at least partly. Acted by Paraguayans, at least mostly. And we ha- had like a kind of a logic in how we selected these films from the IMDb because obviously if you go to IMDb and you select the uh, three best rated movies from there it will just give you like results of somebody's home movie done in 1974 and with one run one rating for that particular movie and then it would be kind of the same story for the rest of the film so it would be just sorted by the rating really so we needed to figure something out so what I had as a basis was that the, the film has to have at least 
100 ratings on IMDb, and it has to be essentially a Paraguayan movie, not like an American movie that is shot in Paraguay or anything like that. Paraguayan cinema, by the way, it's, it's, it's a very tiny industry. There are some other films that we could have looked at, but uh, according to this method that we have now, we couldn't. Uh, we could have looked at the uh, Hamaka, Hamaka Para Paraguaya, which is a slow art film, the, the Paraguayan uh, hammock, uh, which would have been the third film for us to watch today, but we decided we're just gonna go purely by the by the rating and the 100 vote system. But as it happens today, we have two films that are directed by the two same guys. So if we would have ha wanted to have a little bit of more variety, we could have chosen the Paraguayan hammock instead of uh, the other film. Uh, for example, I, I guess we would have dropped in that case The Gold Seekers. Yeah, then again, going with that road would, would have mean that we would have been kind of a, tweaking the rules of how we choose the movies e even more. Like you already narrowed it down, it has to be, it, it has to come from the said country. It has to have more than, than it has to have over 100 ratings. And those already... And also the fact that, you know, with those those tags in place, what is the highest rated movie in IMDb? So we already had like three limiting qualifications for the movies that we chose. And had we gone with the Hammock movie instead of Code Seekers, it would have kind of meant that we would have... Uh, then we would have been tinkering with a fourth variable here. A fourth mm. thing, thing that that kind of limits what movies we are going to to check out, and I, I guess at this point three is enough limitations for our qualification process for the chosen movies. So I was kind of kind of on the on the side that we don't need to make it so extra difficult, as to mm. also take into to a point that no two movies can have the same director. Right. Well, before we really get to the, to the mac and cheese here, or what have you, the history, if you prefer mac and, mac and cheese to anything else, well, whatever. Uh, the history of the cinema in Paraguay, it's, it's tiny, as I told you. But the first films shot in Paraguay were silent charts in the 1900s. Actually, it, it was done by an Argentinian director, Ernesto Gunche, but... Uh, Hippolito or Hippolito Caron, a 10 minute silent film, was the first ever Paraguayan film filmed in 1925. And the first film shot in Paraguay to use sound was 1932 Argentine documentary. But the first feature finally was in Codicia or Codicia 1955, an Argentina Paraguay co production. And there's plenty of uh, Argentine Paraguayan co productions. And after, of course, the reign of Alfredo Stroessner, the uh, aforementioned bad person who was leading the country as a dictator for well, about 40 years, then the cinema started to open up as well. And uh, finally, there were some funds and even like a tiny, tiniest of interest from the government side and from the public side to, to, to make Paraguayan cinema. So they were finally able to make, in 1990, the foundation of Fundación Cinemateca del Paraguay. So, foundation of, of cinema. And 
this allowed for some more more tools for for funding for these films and in 2000s really i would say that we have seen now the paraguayan cinema rise and people have started to take some notice and the big problem in the country itself is that many people don't seem to go really go and gravitate towards the, the, their own cinema the markets are dominated as everywhere just the low by the local film industry in this case argentinian films argentine films and of course the united states and 2017 there was a, a bill of audiovisual promotion which allowed the creation of national film institute of paraguay making things even easier and uh yeah, let's just jump right into it. How do you want to go about this, Henrik? Do you want to go into the the duo directors and their movies first, or I don't know. I I guess we can kind of just go them film by film, starting with you know with Seven Boxes and Gold Seeker, since those share the director. Yeah, I'm not really sure if if that's like like they're the best best way to go with like given my audiences that today's episode this is very much a proof of concept episode from us where we are also trying to figure out the quirks of exactly doing this type of content and looking looking different countries this way so it it's not have been like the concept here has not been ironed out and because of that i really don't know like like what would be the optimal way to approach these movies or you know to make this episode well yeah well we know that director of directors of seven boxes and gold secrets are juan carlos maneglia and dana shembori these are paraguayan well-known super duo who have directed tv shorts and feature films so far, very very well known in the country, and uh, and Juan Carlos is a bachelor of science and communication, and uh, did a, f- a short film for Film Workshop in NYFA, the New York Film Academy. Who uh, Siete Cajas or Seven Boxes? It's the highest grossing film in Paraguay still, as I understand. And The Gold Seekers was the Paraguayan entry to the 19th Oscars or the Academy Awards. Wait. Which also is a good reason for us to keep the the gold seekers on the films to watch list today. Yeah, fair enough, even though you hate the Oscars with all of your might. Even even though I do hate hate the Oscars, but since we are toying with with once again a new uh, kind of new concept for the show, I kind of do feel that having a guide light like. The fact that one of these films were put forward for reconsideration for to, to contest for the best foreign picture in in Oscars, it's kind of it, it works as as a way for us to kind of sort out what we are going to watch. And unfortunately, with Paraguayan Hammock, that wouldn't have been the case. Like we would have once again lost one more marker that we. We now were able to use to kind of figure out exactly what are the movies that we are going to talk about. Precisely, an interesting quote from uh, uh, the duo. We always dream of a Paraguayan cinema that identifies with us continuously 
to find our identity, end quote. And yeah, this is very evident in the films. They try to cramp up in a, a bit of the Paraguayan uh, history and the Paraguayan locale. Not only the fancy places and the beautiful parts, but especially in Seven Boxes case, you kind of see, see the ugly sides and they don't really hold it back. Even make kind of fun of it and highly enjoyable and, and engaging. I too did take note of that quote. Yeah. And I, I must say, I have really mixed feelings about the quote. And because of the quote, I also have very mixed feel- mixed feelings about the whole, whole Paraguayan cinema altogether. Because it it does hold true, in my opinion, to a point. Like, for me, I, in, in Seven Boxes, I see very much, you know, a Paraguayan filmmakers trying to, to build up Paraguayan identity through cinema. But then when I looked at the gold seekers... I just couldn't help but be thinking about this smells a lot like America. Well, maybe the Gold Seekers is a very interesting choice for 90th or Academy Awards because if you would have chosen something, if you if you could have had something there, seven boxes, definitely uh, Gold mm-hmm. Seekers, maybe more tra- traditional, the entire something that applies and uh, engages the entire family, a family movie with some adventure and thriller and uh, fun elements. Maybe not like something that you would be able to sell outside of the country outright, but it's it's a fun film. Ah. Uh... I am on the side that, in my opinion, when it comes to these movies, The Code Seekers is the easiest one to sell, like, worldwide. When it comes to international cinema, and when it comes to, like, like cinema as, as a content, cinema for everyone, I would say Code Seekers is perhaps the easiest one from today's gathering of movies to, to actually push on that market. When it comes to, on the other hand, when it comes to kind of having a film that strongly feels independent, when it comes to to a movie that like really has the tone that this couldn't be made anywhere else, well, in that case, in my opinion, The Gold Seekers is like the weakest movie that we have today. And seeing how the Oscars... Well, first of all, Oscars always are a shit-tier award, unfortunately, because so much of what happens to, you know, cozy up the Americans this year plays into what gets qualified, and more so into the what actually wins the, wins the prize. But, like, like the, the Oscar Academy, they, they always want to give you this this idea, this image that what they value in international cinema is the individuality. It does not exactly hold true, but that's what they want to tell you. And against that idea, like that, that not going to say outright lie, but that image that they want to present to you, against the pr- image, it's kind of weird to put so... American-like movie as the Code Seekers up for the competition. 
Like, I, I would have believed that seven boxes would have had a higher chance of winning the international movie Oscar than the Code Seekers. Yeah, it's, it's it definitely has influences that the Gold Seekers. It, it's a movie that we have, in a sense, seen a thousand times, but it's just a different kind of a rendition that we have here. It's it's really well made. A lot of love and thought has been put into it, and I think the even plot wise, it might be having a little bit more than some of those the similar films adventure films for the whole family from the United States uh, but uh, yeah I mean if you're looking for some more originality perhaps then yeah definitely seven boxes is something to see from Paraguay yeah the, the thing with the code seekers is that when I was watching it I was constantly thinking that yeah this sure as this sure smells like national treasure it basically I'm not saying that it, it's copying National Treasure. I know that, you know, my statement is somewhat inflammatory here, but I'm not saying that The Code Seekers is a bad movie. I'm not saying that it did anything wrong, and most definitely I'm not saying that it's a copycat of The National Treasure. But when it comes to tone, when it comes to kind of... If, if we would have, like, like, if we would have a concept of of the essence of cinema, or essence of a movie, this type of an inner quality that, that a film could have. I would say that when it comes to Code Seekers and National Treasure, they share a hell of a lot of the same essence. Yeah, right. Right. Maybe by looking the, at, the, at the trailers, maybe by looking at the film itself, maybe by looking at some of the cinematography, you might feel that, oh, okay, this is a little unconventional okay i haven't seen that before okay that's maybe it's a, just a little of a wonky cut to be honest in the beginning of the film I, I was just looking at this one moment where our lead character is riding the bike in the one direction he is it's kind of like a full body shot and then in the next shot we have him in the in the frame in the bang on in the middle of the frame and uh, the motion is towards us not that it matters but it, it looks a little weird when we cut from like where the character is in bang on in the center of the screen and then we cut on to the next shot that is exactly like that the character is bang on in the middle of the screen walking towards us and uh, usually usually you don't really see that that much maybe if you want to be a little experimentalist okay but uh, there were a couple of moments like 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 that that I was thinking, hmm, uh, that feels a little funny to my eyes. Uh, did, did you get that uh, effect in the first five minutes of the film? I kind of did. Uh, it, it wasn't really strong for me. For me, the moment that kind of marks the five, five minutes, or, or the, the thing that I remember from, from the first five minutes of the movie is the semi-gritty and semi this is gonna sound terrible, but poor rendition of the typical grave robber scene from Indiana Jones or what have you. Like, like you have those movies, Indiana Jones and, and National Treasures and, and the, the likes, you always have the moment when somebody is is breaking into the tomb or the dark cave and they are like 
lowering themselves with a with a rope and a wrench and what and you you know this scene you you've seen it it it's traditional in in these type of uh, type of stories and the code secrets does the exact same thing except in here instead of of a you know a tomb in middle of the darkest jungle or I don't know a Byzantine library hidden under the streets of Boston or something like that. But instead of those, what what you have, you have a warehouse and a, and a small hole there, and that's kind of like the the running image that I had for the first five minutes. So even though I did notice the same same problems that you notice about the cinematography and how how the characters are composed on the image to me it was not that limiting factor it didn't like ruin the first five minutes for me and it wasn't i I did notice it but it didn't like really rise up in into my eyes as something that i would pay a huge attention to it was kind of a, a background thing for me yeah, though it feels very conscious choice, and I, I think these are very experienced filmmakers still. Uh, so I think that was on purpose. Maybe just try to break the rules a little bit. I think it's just my conditioning as a film watcher that, yeah, that jumped a bit. But never mind if you know. So let's just get on with it. It's a, it's not that kind of a big of a big of a deal. What about the production values and uh, the, and the and the whole story? I, I felt that it was actually surprisingly well made. It doesn't feel that it's done on such of a low budget. On on some places, maybe the lighting, some of the angle choices. I don't know. But there's some really nice cinematography here. Some of those aerial shots, some of those fr- frozen in motion. Shots where looking at a, like a it's like a landscape shot, and you see a bicycle there or some motorcycle, and a lot of attention has been paid to this that it it feels like it's breathing. Um, I must do. I must stress out that I, I'm not saying. I must definitely. I'm not saying that the movie is bad. I'm not say, saying that uh, the movie is is poorly made or it looks cheap, but. In my opinion, when it comes to the, the production budget the limitations, you do see them in, in Code Seekers more strongly than in our other two movies, Seven Boxes and The Heresses. Uh, and that, in my opinion, the reason why that kind of shows up in your ra- radar, why, why Code Seekers is the, is the one where the, the budget is perhaps the most noticeable, is the reason that the genre all together that they are playing with, the, the treasure hunter adventure movie genre, we, at, at least in Europe, at, at least in Finland, we, we all have been spoiled by the American mega budget, you know, blockbuster cinema. Yeah. Like, we, we have seen these stories being told with so much higher budget that, that, the code se- than what what code seekers had to play with, that we automatically kind of like we subconsciously we expect to see something there that the code seekers really can't offer to you. Like to us, the treasure hunter cinema is is like it is it is a huge tomb somewhere, 
and it's a it's a lavish chase chase scenes where you have five trucks full of Nazis and Indiana Jones is is going going you know under and over and sideways ways of a truck. You we are we have been trained we have been uh, well we have been trained to expect the cutting edge of CGI. Like we we have. <sighs> That's kind of what we have been conditioned to. Yeah, and Codesickers, obviously, it can't have that. And smartly, once again, to point out that it's not a bad film, and it's not really like... I make a huge thing about the budget, but it it really is not a deal breaker here. Codesickers smartly avoids this by toning down its story to a ground level and playing with that. In a way where it does not have to have all the set pieces of an of an Indiana Jones movie. Mm. But uh, unfortunately, because of our conditioning, it also means that we do recognize also that the reality that th- these choices have partly most been made because of the budgets. Because Code Secrets doesn't have $250 million dollars. To, to you know spend on the filmmaking so it can't have all the all the national treasure gimmickry playing around so it turns around its story all fine and well but unfortunately because of all the national treasure bullshit we also kind of realize that you know this is also a budget reason that goes on behind here yeah maybe the gold seeker is the kind of a movie that you shouldn't analyze analyze to death it's just it's just a really fun movie i think it's it's fun to follow it's it's great to of course we this is the problem with the goddamn extreme subjectivity and i think it's really highlighted with movies like this where we have this is kind of a national treasure on a way in a way that wow maybe for Paraguayans as well. They're looking at this movie and, oh, this is our little national treasure. We really haven't made any films like this. Let's, so uh, I, I totally love that we're doing something like this. And it's not only that we have seen this kind of uh, filmmaking in the US already, but the setting is really important, that it's happening in Paraguay, in, in their national setting. And in, I think it gives it that all much more meaning when you're looking at it and of course it's super subjective now even more so because we are just do two doofuses from finland and we're looking at this film maybe our first viewings of any paraguayan cinema ever i can't really i don't know probably but the thing is for us it seems a bit special we haven't seen paraguayan cinema before Maybe for Paraguayans, it also feels really special and they hold it close to their heart. It is kind of a national treasure type of film, but it still has that cultural identity. And I think that makes the big difference. It it does. And like, if you are a long time follower of the podcast, you already know that I'm the type of person who starts with the criticism and then gets into the more appraising stuff in, in my takes. So let me get into also into the appraisal territory. Like when it comes to the code seekers and, for example, the national treasure, I, I, I you know, gave, gave a lot of shit about, you know, the, the budget, etc. But the fact still remains as a movie, code seekers has more to say than 
what national treasure has. And it Code Secrets presents to you much harsher take. It, it has more themes than mm. what National Treasure has. National Treasure, the only theme that it really had was the celebration of an American exceptionalism. <laughs> the franchise itself basically is nothing more than a bunch of Americans just flexing their dicks about how great American is and how Abraham Lincoln was a great person, etc., 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 etc. Like the whole films revolve around just, you know, bunch of American assholes wanted to get the Lincoln's hair locket or or proving whose granddaddy was a true patriot or some shit like that. And that's all there is. But in Code Seekers, you actually have a societal theme to be found out. And that's like when I started the episode, I, I said that I I was wrong in my hesitation to, to do this episode, and I st- stand corrected. Watching these th- three movies that we wa- watched t- today, I actually made, clearly saw a ra- running them- theme throughout all these movies. And it's a theme that also the Code Seeker shares. And that theme is that capitalist system has completely failed, creates a hell of a lot of in- inequality, and fuck capitalism. And, you know, it's a, it's a hot take that National Treasure never can even dream of having. Hmm. Interesting take. It's really a f- fun, fun, happy-go-lucky kind of movie that there's that the events, if you think about them in, the, in a way that you would like to approach it from a more realistic perspective. No, you can't, fi- you can't find anything that really makes sense in the film. There's many too stupid mistakes that the lead characters do. Starting off with, oh my god, the guy finally gets around the property and then starts hopping around and doing, trying to kind of test that the distances in the yard and immediately he is captured by security cameras and two, three, four, five people and then they tell about the whole plan basically to everybody that they can possibly possibly tell about it. So it's it's amazing that it didn't go even more wrong, but yeah, it's something that I will not really blame the movie so much is just yeah. if something it actually grants the proceedings a level of realism because once, once again you know harken back to national treasure indian jones what you have there is is part superhuman individuals who without any type of training indian jones is a goddamn college professor hmm. remind you or university professor but any, anyways He's a goddamn educator. And yet the movies frame these individuals as some as people who can somehow either uh, wiggle out centuries old death traps with, with no sweat or maneuver around modern security camera features, break into highly secured wards. You know, basically, what, what have you? They, they have... They managed to do feats that they, by any means, they shouldn't have any expertise on how to pull or pull, pull them off, and they, they just like Nicolas Cage shouldn't be able to break into a highly secure bank vault, <laughs> or manage to do a high-speed car chase. Like that's that's obviously something that shouldn't happen. But in in National Treasures, 
you know, they, they managed to pull it off. And it, it's fine, it's fine in your dumb action blockbuster, but the Code Seekers approach, where the people actually constantly try to do what Nicolas Cage does in National Treasure, and completely fails to do it, like, our main hero tries to navigate around the security cameras and be super sneaky when he's measuring the steps in the embassy, in the embassy's land. But of course he's gonna fail it. He's, he's a, you know, <laughs> bicycle paper boy. He's, he's not a professional braking expert. Oh, that's true. So I kind of did appreciate the fact that our heroes make so many, yes, arguably really stupid and illogical mistakes. But at, at the same time, you know, having having seen, spent my time with Nicolas Cage's superhero characters, I did kind of enjoy this added level of realism where they just just fuck a whole bunch of stuff up. What do you think is the the whole thing with the, the prostitutes or the trans prostitutes fascination with these directors? Yeah, we have that element in two of those films. Really hard to speculate on on my part, but it's there. Something I noticed. I, I, I was also kind of surprised to see that in both movies, we we have a transsexual prostitutes as a minor side characters who show up in the middle of some conflict, play a little role and then exit the, the proceedings almost completely. More so in, in Seven Boxes than in, in Code Seekers, but they actually at least do have a repeated appearance. But I kind of took it... Uh, and this is a pure guess from my end. I have no facts to, to back any of this up. But I took it that it's, it, it, it would be an attempt to, once again, grant the movies a level of uh, grounded realism. Uh, so, something impo- important to note here is that, well, Seven Boxes, obviously, as, as a film, it's... it's quite realistic and it wouldn't need this this is added a level of realism through a transsexual char- character but seven boxes also is is the preceding movie mm-hmm. it's it's the first movie that that this duo makes the gold seekers is the follow-up that came out what seven years after seven boxes there's a five-year difference seven boxes 2012 to gold seekers 2017 Okay, yeah, five-year five, five year gap. But with that five-year gap, you actually can have the directors figuring out what worked, like what elements grant how much realism to your, to your movie, and what elements you can kind of take away from and insert into your next movie. You couldn't have the, the high gritty violence of Seven Boxes, nor you could have the nihilistic nature of of that film's story inserted into into the Code Seekers. It would have been, it would make a tonal clash, and most definitely it would make a film that you couldn't then market for the whole audience. You couldn't show the, the murders of Seven Boxes in a movie like The Code Seekers. Or you mm. could, but that would be then marked for adults and not, not the whole family. <laughs> but what you can do to add realism is you can 
to look at seven boxes, take the transsexual side character idea and insert that idea also in the, the code seekers. This way, inserting a tiny bit more, more grittiness into the code seekers. I don't know if this was what they were aiming at, but like that's that's my casual guess and gamble as a as a as a Finn who just watched three Paraguayan movies. I did pay some miles, so there's some possible cultural differences in the sec- in the sector, something that you probably wouldn't be able to do in, or you just simply wouldn't do in Finnish films of today. For example, in the Gold Seekers case, there was this what was this part where they are uh, next to a, next to a wall or something, and somebody is on somebody's uh, shoulders and just trying to figure out what's going on on the other side, and and then the guy under this girl is just looking uh, under the dress and says something along the lines that well at least i can't complain about the view and you pig something of that sort but you know you 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 could do that you could do that in finnish cinema you couldn't do it as casually as the code seekers does yeah Okay, um, I guess we can talk a little bit more, a little bit more about seven boxes. Seven boxes. Well, hit it, man. What did you think? I really did like the seven boxes. It, yeah. it was a surprise favorite of mine from this lineup. I was kind of hesitant when the, when the film started. I I saw. Uh, a lot of red flags from, you know, starting directors, small budget, ter- territory-wise. But once it really get, got going, like once our main character actually has the titular seven boxes, it kind of takes, takes a... It's kind of a weird experience because there is kind of a, a goofy nature in in the like like the first part that the first act of a film of the film before the boxes are handed to our main character or, or because before the proceedings to really start but after you know the the somewhat rocky start once the box situation really gets going it all of a sudden it gets really gritty and really dark and yes. once once we hit the hit those tones, I was fully on board with the movie. It gets surprisingly surprisingly dark, and uh, I was looking at the first five or ten minutes or so of, of of the seven boxes, and I kept thinking maybe like you, what is this film trying to tell me? And then I read some reviews online, and I started to think then think think it through again, like what what are they trying to really do here? And it could of course be that. He really wants that fancy, fancy phone because he's so infatuated by the girl lead of the story, and so just wants to show off to the lady. But I, I honestly didn't get that feeling when I when I was started watching watching the film. Did you have any of those ideas in your head? Uh, not that idea. Uh, to me, yeah, the basically the chemistry with the girl was always casual. Mm-hmm. Like there, there was a possibility for something, but our main character is so locked up, you know, behind his own fantasies that it, it's it's kind of like it, it's kind of like the situation where you have the treasure right in front of you, but because you are constantly thinking that the 
grasses greener on the other side, you don't actually see the gold that that is in front of your eyes. So the, so the hmm. same, and that's kind of the situation with the with the girl. Oh, that's an interesting that view. Perfectly, you know, level-headed, well-meaning girl who is, you know, interested is interested about you, and. What our main character ends up doing is treating her like garbage. Basically as something that is usable on uh, based on his own whims. He notices her when it suits suits his needs. When he needs something, then it's like, you know, Oh yeah, we've always been friends, I like you... Please help me out in this situation. And once that situation has has resolved, he quickly just forgets the girl. What he really is looking at is the bloody cell phone. That's like that's something that he gets constantly remarks on, and something that he basically that his drive, his main motivation. And my take on the cell phone was that the cell phone is for a main character is a desperate attempt to escape the notion of his own poverty. Like, he comes from, from obviously, from poor surroundings, does not live the life of luxury, what he has is extremely low-paying manual labor job, he drives a cart and carries other people's groceries. The markets for that type of labor are extremely uh, extremely poor, as we see. There barely is any customers, and he has to fight to, for, to tooth and nail for, you know, to just to have one customer. Most people just don't want to pay, uh, pay his services. So he's, in not, he's not making much money. And then he's being presented the possibility to buy the cell phone, which in his budget... Costs like like a an obscene fortune. It's six hundred thousand Paraguayan ma- currency, and this is a character who I, I guess makes a couple of te- tenors a hundred local at max per day. So the cell phone is completely out of his out of his reach. So from that perspective, the cell phone can actually for our main character, the cell phone can serve. As a as a certain type of a, a type of a totem, something that if he manages to get it, he could then tell to himself that he's not as poor as as he is, because at least he has some rich people shit at his disposal. Yeah, yeah. By the way, the Paraguayan currency is called Guarani. Yeah, that was it. That was it. Yeah, they they do key mention mention the currency's name. The film a couple of times, but it's I the... just did not pay enough the attention to take it up. Yeah, yeah, it's one of the least valued currencies in South America, and seems to be a kind of a still a lack of tourists in the area, and the the money is extremely devalued. I felt that the, the whole beginning of the five ten minutes was really needed, though it it, it well establishes the characters that we're going to be dealing with and their relationship to each other, which is rocky to say the least from the very beginning. There are these two guys, and I couldn't quite figure out if these two guys who start fighting in the marketplace, uh, the, our antagonist and uh, protagonist, 
if they have any bad relationship with this, with each other. Is he working in the marketplace near next to them as well, or what's his whole thing? I think there's a lot of questions that the movie evokes in me, and then I don't get any answers. Not necessarily very important answers, but they're nevertheless there, just raising questions. And we established uh, the inherent need of this guy to get the medication for his kid. So that's his motivation, the signaling for him and that he has to do something uh, or pay with basically uh, his kid's life. And then the other guy, like you said, we definitely prime it so that the, our lead character has this tiny moment. You definitely see it. You, there's this tiny moment where he's just figuring out the calculation in his head. That, okay, 600,000 for a fucking phone. And I'm so fucking done with this shit. I want to rise above this. I want this highly paid gig. I want that phone. I want to move away from poverty. Maybe get the girl at the end as well. It, it, it wasn't, I wasn't seeing it in the same way as you were. Maybe that the girl was necessarily really mistreated by the guy during the movie. I understood that the main character is dealing with a really important mission. He can't fuck it up. He's laser focused on that. Of course, during that time, the girl has some pretty good ideas, but the way that she kind of carries herself throughout most of this movie is that she is just completely unfocused and doesn't know what the hell is going on and doesn't seem to be even, frankly, worth of his time to tell what the hell is going on. I, on the other hand, I, I saw that aspect as, as a failing of our main character, who, whose, whose name is Victor, I yeah. Yes, we have to to name the characters just in case that you know. Yeah, Victor. <laughs> you know that they, they they start to revolve more and more in in today's discussion. But yeah, I I saw that more as a as a failing of Victor here because when it comes to his his job, really is not that important. In fact, him keeping with his or sticking with his job actually makes him an, well, an incredible asshole. It does not start out that way necessarily. Like, you can you can lend some acceptance for Victor's actions early on in the movie. Like, back in the day when, back in the moment when he's first handed the boxes. He does not yet know what the boxes, you know, entail. He's only been, you know, shown more money than perhaps he has ever seen in his life, and the people talk about merchandise. That the obvious, obvious alarm bell that goes in your, uh, inside your head obviously is drugs. Most likely that's also what, what Victor thinks. Or at least he should think, think that, you know, they are hiring him up to work as a drug smoker. Well, that already is bad on itself. Obviously... You shouldn't smuggle drugs, you should report to the authorities. You know, drugs being illegal and shit. But fine, fine, let's let's grant Victor his, his drug mule moment. He really needs the cell phone. So, you know, smuggle some drugs. But later in the film, goddamn, Victor figures out that it's not drugs, it's actually a human body parts because somebody is covering up goddamn murder. Yeah, but they cut. hacked up the body in order to get rid of the evidence. Like, at that moment, and that moment, after that moment, your job is not important. You know, a murder has happened. You should tell to the cops. 
that that's what any decent person would do. He would yeah. report to the authorities, oh, hey, wait a minute, a murder has happened and here's all the body parts. Please solve this case, somebody has died. And Victor just decides that, eh, fuck it, still need the phone. And, and finally at that, that was like, like just, just a tad bit too much. I was kind of willing to be like, like, yeah, drug smuggler Victor, perhaps an anti-hero, oh. slight good guy, but, oh, I'm coming up a murder Victor is like, dude, you are an asshole. Well, his situation is super complicated, isn't it? Uh, he has already come across some cops who wanted to open the boxes and then just barely was able to convince them to go f- fuck off. And then later, if he, after he realizes that they are actually human body parts, would he now go to the, <laughs> to the corrupt police that, hey, here's my body parts, what should we do? Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm fully innocent, right? Well, uh, that's what, what you should do. Still, even even with with you know the the previous mistake of like you know, but it's his misdirecting the, the the cops when they were trying to open the boxes. It's because his the com- thing th- still remains. Someone has been killed, and the killers are trying to get away with it by hacking up the corpse and you know hiding the body parts. Victor himself can't solve the murder. And can't bring any peace to the, the loved ones and, and relatives of, you know, the unfortunate victim. The only one who can actually do that is the bloody police. I think it's just... So this just, <laughs> maybe so it's just in, in, in the sake of, you know, the loved ones of the victim. Yeah, he should have reported it to the cops and, you know, get a proper investigation going. I think it's partly played for, for the laughs that, you know, there's this guy who's just... Uh, probably taking you know whatever the goods are foods food items cell phones whatever the case around this little town but now he has human body parts uh, doesn't matter doesn't matter what the product is i shouldn't know anyway i'm just gonna move along move along i'm gonna finish my mission like a good man that i am from the favela type of neighborhoods and i'm just gonna finish the mission no matter what i am a faithful employee and fuck you for calling me i'm gonna finish this job uh, but other than that, what the hell is in the boxes actually? And what seven boxes or fourteen boxes or what? What's actually? Tell to my dumbass what is happening with the boxes. They already lose the boxes, then they find boxes again because the girl has stuck some boxes into another place. Apparently, this has to be absolutely different boxes because they already left the aforementioned boxes to the alleyway. So in one box says, according to this tomato guy, he's, I call him Mr. Tomato. The Mr. Tomato says that he thought that the tomatoes were supposed to be uh, the lady. Am I, am I having that right? Yeah, Mr. Tomato thinks that the tomatoes are the body parts. So he slices the body into small body parts and puts them into seven boxes. And in the meanwhile, his boss manager, let's call him Mr. Mr. Teeth. Mr. Teeth was meaning with the tomatoes that it's going to, going to be some cash that's going to be delivered. And the lettuce was supposed to be the lady, but they didn't use the code word lettuce in that case. So, what's with the boxes? With the boxes, what you have basically 
is is you you what you have is is seven boxes and all the other boxes are empty. The seven boxes contain the, the hacked up body parts of of the kidnapped lady. Like the, those who haven't haven't seen seen the movie and wanna be on track exactly what the hell is going on with the plot. Well, well, spoilers. Way too too late. Way too late in in this case. But the movie revolves around a bit like Fargo kind of situation. You have a business owner whose name was something I can't actually remember. Was it Farad or or whoever was? Is is the the business owner that has been shown to you like during the last ten minutes of the movie? Yeah. Anyways, that guy has a wife who has a rich father. And the guy has gotten him to himself a great idea. I'm gonna have my own wife kidnapped. And then, you know, me and my criminal cohorts are going to, you know, blackmail my wife's dad for some ransom cash. And the whole idea was that, you know, they, they just keep the... the the kidnapped lady locked up in one room for X number of days until the ran- ransom com- comes through, through and then they just quietly re- release her. And nobody is the wiser, you know. Mm. They stay married and now all of a sudden they do, uh, all the assholes have a whole bunch of money. Unfortunately, the kidnapped lady kind of panics it, tries to break out, accidentally cuts his wrist on broken glass and bleeds, bleeds to death. And our, like, criminal cohorts, Teeth and, and his lackey, especially the lackey, gets the, the bright idea that he's going to cover up the whole fact that the kidnapped lady has now died, and hacks the, the body apart and, and stu- stuffs it inside seven boxes in, 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 you know, small handy body parts. One box has head and the other one has hands. Etc. 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 That part is clear, Henrik. But uh, what about the the other card that they are having with the crates or boxes, if you will? It's Cause... basically the other card that they have is nothing more than just you know piled up empty boxes. Hmm. Victor does this stunt once in a movie where he has to he has lost the boxes. Because he sta- staffs them in, into a into an empty empty warehouse building and goes to think about his situation. He has just, just figured out that the the boxes contain body parts, so he panics and leaves them unattended for a moment. And unfortunately, at that moment, you know that the whole area catches fire because of some some leaking gas bottles or what, what was it and. Now Victor believes that the boxes are gone. They they have burned to the to crisp. So in order to kind of con the criminals, he stuffs a second card with empty boxes and tries mm. to present them as well. Here's your delivery, the body parts. He just hopes that he gets paid the rest of his money right. before everybody anyone notices that. Oh my God! Hey, these are empty boxes. Okay. And then, you know, after that goes sideways, he then learns that that at least the young one woman who at times accompanies Victor in, in his mission actually has followed Victor to the empty warehouse 
And before the fire starts, she has actually taken the boxes and, you know, brought them into a safe place. Why she actually does this and does not alert the authorities, it's it's a valid question. I took it that that's because she was infatuated with Victor. I still was hoping that if she somehow proves her capabilities to Victor, Victor might actually see, see you know, some value in her. Perhaps finally would be kind to her. And that's why he covers up the boxes. But anyways, you know, whatever her reasoning, it still also makes her kind of a shitty person. Hmm. She too knows that the boxes contain body parts, so somebody has to be murdered. And still, you know, I repeat, you should report that shit to the police. Yeah, but this is a good example, perhaps, of what happens to you when you are faced by a lot of poverty in your area. I was just checking how much actually it is, 600,000 of Quaranis, and it uh, amounts to about 80 euros. Did amount in 2017-2018 and does more or less today, so that's really, really nothing. So you can just imagine in what kind of a poverty they are living in. Yeah, and that's that really is like, like I, I I said that these films have the running theme of of fuck capitalism, and mm. Seven Boxes has it the strongest. Yeah, because what the whole situation eventually revolves around of is well, two rich people and their their dumbass lackey trying to cover up the fact that. That they have been taken part in conspiracy of kidnapping, which has led to, well, to manslaughter or accidental death. And they are trying to cover the whole shit up by, you know, hacking the corpse in, in pieces. And, and then they hire a poor person, you know, to, to be the body part mule. Mm. And basically, the rest of the movies is just a bunch of desperate poor people. Fighting yeah. over a transportation of, you know, seven boxes full of body parts. Yeah. Because they all hope that, you know, the cargo is something that will somehow, you know, lift them up from poverty. This is mm-hmm. the moment where the, the film's main antagonist, the Nelson, the, the dude who uh, plays a hand in the most, most of the violent situations that... Res- actually result during the movie. We could we could say that in in this this group of assholes, he's the main bad guy. But with that we also have to take notice that Nelson also does does what he, he does in film in the in in the film, which results in, you know, number of additional deaths and murders. His reasoning for that is that Nelson also is a poor person who believes that the boxes contain 600 and... or was it 250,000 US dollars? Yeah. Which would be something like 1 billion and 600 millions in, in local currency. So it would be a huge deal of money to him. And he's kind of desperate because... He has a sick son and, you know, starving wife and the son needs, needs medicine. Mm-hmm. So even though Nelson perhaps is the main antagonist, and if you can say the main bad guy of the film, but, and, and what Nelson does in course of the film 
it most definitely it's wrong. It's not acceptable. But Nelson also is the guy who has a better motivation for what he does than Victor. Victor wants a cell phone. Nelson wants to save his son. And also, Nelson does not know know that the boxes have body parts in them. Victor has that knowledge. Nelson thinks that the boxes contain American dollars. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, apart from all of this, what we, what we we we've said about Victor so far, there is also this kind of a blood thread that we follow. That Victor is really interested in, well, c- not only cinema but but being famous. And it seems that whatever he's looking at the screens, at least from the initial one, every time he's looking at the TV screens. It seems that he is in those scenes, so he kind of sees himself being in those scenes. And this finally happens by the end of the film, when uh, he becomes a sort of a famous person for for what he did. He was in this dangerous situation, but survived to tell the story and was, some, I guess, some kind of a hero of this story. So he has this big smile at the end of the film, and that's the finishing touches. Um, I don't know what this was exactly. Was this kind of making fun of <laughs> the poor people in Paraguay that they watch a lot of TV and that's their way of entertainment and maybe their way to relax and uh, and um, they identify with it a lot. Maybe they watch a lot of TV and, and Victor is some kind of a funny uh, cliche case of this, this situation. I'm not sure. I didn't th- take it that way. Um... Of course, you know, your assessment of of the poor people on TV is somewhat, somewhat true. Uh, that the fact is that poor people actually have... That they have less ways to entertain themselves on, on their free time than those who are well-off and rich. Don't have the, the you know, high-end BC gaming rigs or the latest consoles. And can't really spend their, their free time going through through their stock options, because, once again, poor. So, it's quite natural that they actually really do spend quite a lot of time watching TV on their free time, because they also need some way to unbind after a hard day. Mm-hmm. And the TV is one of the few luxuries that they actually, you know, can have, yeah. if even that... Not everybody can afford a bloody TV. But I didn't take that that was what the film was trying to say. I My reading was that it was, once again, it was... Like, to, to stick with the with the take that the, this is a movie that does not really have a good guy in it. It has a bunch of different level of assholes. And this would kind of be highlighting also the fact, because part of Victor's asshole nature would be that that he really just wants to be famous. Mm-hmm. No matter how, by any means necessary. And, well, Victor loses the money, obviously. that This happens early on in the film when he's presented a $100 bill that has been torn in half. The promise mm-hmm. is that he gets the other half after the job is done, and later it's been, you know, revealed that if if the money is torn into, in two, it loses its value. It can't be used. So, Victor never had, had a chance of getting that $100. The dumbasses 
managed to, to fuck up even that for him. So the only victory that he can actually get is his chance at at being famous. His 15 minutes of fame. And that's actually what he manages to get at the very end. And I took that that was really like... That was where, where the whole thing was going on. It, it showed you a person who dreams of being some type of famous person. No matter how. And at the end of the day... He's smiling because he finally got his wish. Yeah, and definitely TV is this kind of a mirror into the high life, the, the better life. And it's something that he's dreaming about and at least he gets part of his wishes to come true. He doesn't exactly become a you know rich person by the end, I suppose, but he gets something that he wanted. Uh, talking of the cinematography of the film, well, this is more notable than... The gold seekers we have you know this high angles drone shots and then we have this interesting chase scenes frankly i think it's all done very well there's some kind of experimentalist takes or original camera angles on under the cart or looking at the face from a high angle of the character when he's running with the cards walking with the cards and things like that and especially the starting of the film there's this like I don't know, time-lapse effect going on when we start off. Kind of kicks you in the gear. It's cool stuff. Yeah, the cinematography, I also agree with you. I, I do think that it's more... I, I don't say better, but perhaps more energetic. At least more... More inventional than what it was in The Gold Seekers. Yeah. There were, there were some and this people... might, of course, once again, play into the code seekers more more obviously being a film that has been meant for everybody and meant for international consumption so of course if you want to push your movie to the mass market it's easier to push if you use if you use typical cinematography and mm. don't try to do any any artsy fartsy extra trickery with your camera yeah or that, or that shallow depth of field when the character just kind of goes inside the blur when Nelson Nelson is giving that evil eye to the cashier at the pharmacy when he, she refuses to give any medication for any kind of a payment or down payment, and yeah, he just disappears into the blur. I enjoy those kind of small details quite a bit, so. Um, but not only the camera work in the film, but there, there is also some pretty cool music in the film. And actually, the, the guy who did the music for the Gold Seekers, uh, Derlis A. Gonzalez, he's supposedly the more better known Paraguayan film composer who has actually made some touches on the uh, Hollywood side of things as well. Whereas the guy who did the music for Seven Boxes, Fran Villalba, maybe not so well-known um, from what I can gather, but nevertheless, I, I found the music kind of interesting and different than... What do you think? It just gave a different energy for some of those chase scenes. And there were even some comments that said that the energy of the film is kind of off, on, off, on, off, on, and it gets a little exhausting. I didn't have this, that experience at all. What about you? No. Uh, I can, I can kind of see the argument... Like, perhaps the, when it comes to the energy of the movie, there 
Yeah, yeah, you can you can say that there perhaps is an off-on, off-on situation going on. These, uh, the, like the movie is, <clears throat> revolves, uh, resolves very much in the way where you, you are shown a scene of a, of a, you know, a highly exciting chase scene or something of the sort. And then the next scene is much more quieter, much more... Much more, much more slower, more slower, yeah. and you you have like like you you have situations where where the cha- from the from one chase scene you then transition into the moment when Victor's sister goes up the stairs to the to the room where the girl was being held held hostage. And and sees the crime scene, and that's also a very long scene. It's a very slow scene. It really takes its time. It it puts its it it builds its mood slowly, gradually. Mm. And in that way, yeah, certainly you can have on off on off on situation mm-hmm. when it comes to the the tension of the movie. But I actually quite liked it. For me, it was not a problem. Mm-hmm. Something that you definitely can't escape from in Spanish world, let's say Latino world, seems to be the Latino beat, which goes like... I used to listen to that every fucking day in Spanish, and I was so <laughs> sick of it. But now listening to it, maybe I have some, you know, I don't know, nostalgia, but it's fine in, in small... Small doses <laughs> for me. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, I've been exposed to it, well, very recently, only through these movies. So my exposure <laughs> has been really, really small. O- overall, really enjoyable film once again. Really enjoyed it. I'm glad you had some fun too. Should we talk about the higher heiresses at this point? Yeah. Okay, the heiresses. The heiresses. Well, this might get a little tricky. Might get a little interesting if we want to talk about how this would be viewed if we would gender flip this film. But anyway, your quick thoughts. Mm, I. Well, you really managed to catch me off guard with your question okay i don't know uh i perhaps i would believe that the even in in gender flip scenario there really would not be you know any problems with it like like the or, or the the audience wouldn't react in any remarkable way even if this movie would be gender flipped Okay, I, I will say that technically, story-wise, it's a, I think it's a really engaging film for what it is. It's a really slow film, but then again, it's not dropping your attention, I would say. that It's really meticulously planned, really interesting cinema. But the, the, but the thing is that in some way I've seen this before so many times, and that's not even the problem. Or is it? One of the problems here well, might be a potential problem, actually is, is that I don't really understand why every time we have women in this situation, it's just 
well, let me put it this way. If you have a guy and a girl in a relationship in a movie, and for whatever reason, then the girl goes off and the guy is having some fun for a couple of months and then realizes that, oh, maybe I like this girl a little bit more. That would be... This guy would be fucking nailed to the wall. But when it comes to the woman, when it's a woman relationship, let's say like a woman-woman relationship in this situation, it it's actually art. It's beautiful, it's quaint, it's dramatic, it's artful, and it makes for movies that are given prizes all over the world. And somehow it's something really deep and emotional and really touches your heart. And I don't understand what, what is this dichotomy here that you totally change it when you have a different gender situation. And not only what I think the movie is doing very strongly, it's, it's supposed to be doing, is that this is two women who come from a pretty affluent background, obviously. And then the other girl has had, ha, woman has had some misdeeds during her life, is now completely in debt, has some mistakes, okay, still doesn't change the situation that what the other party is doing here, to me, frankly, it just feels wrong. I know that she gravitates towards the less of a high life, is looking for something different, maybe something more real, I don't know. She just seems to not connect with her lover anymore and then goes on and finds a really young woman and seems to strike some kind of a connection with her. But then again, yeah, so, so what? I I think they didn't play the affluency part maybe strong enough that I would be like, oh, okay, wow, the affluency is so bad for her that she must escape the shackles of the affluent life as soon as possible and just find something where people have actually interesting conversations around me. I don't, I really don't give a fuck about this neighbor's lady who is always complaining in, the, in my car that, and gossiping about people. I don't want to, I don't want to have this life anymore. I, I guess that's what it's supposed to be doing, but how am I supposed to, am I supposed to feel empathy for this character, Jella? Frankly, I don't really. I, I didn't have your problems, but I, can very well understand when where you are coming from because looking at this one i i too got the vibes that you know i've kind of seen this one before it it wasn't it wasn't distracting for me and it did it not become a problem but and i i do maintain that there are aspects in in this movie that still play into the whole idea of, you know, crafting crafting the identity of the Paraguayan cinema. I, I did get that, you know, this is a Paraguayan movie. Feeling from this one. And it's definitely about class kind of fitting in the in the theme. And I, I would say my my the reason for me getting that Paraguayan vibe is is because because of the class aspect, because as a as a film, like as a uh, like, like it's a it's a very kind of slow downplayed drama. You have a handful of characters that that kind of revolve around each other, 
story is, is very simple. One goes to prison, another one has to finally, you know, take up driving a car. It's something that you, you can take all of that. You can easily imagine it, for example, being a French film. <laughs> Small French drama, <laughs> and you wouldn't actually see the difference. The reason you see the difference here, I would say, the reason why this still is very much a Paraguayan movie, is because the French would not take the class aspect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Maybe this is something that we are we're going to see even more and more in the South American cinema, if we're going to delve deeper those, those that class aspect. And maybe to be noted that, as far as I, if I've understood this correctly, the main cast, if not the entire cast, is new stars, just making their debut here. So when you think about that, that's fucking incredible. Some of those performances, I think, are are really wonderful in the film. And this is the first feature film of the director as well. Yeah, the director here, Marcelo Martinez, Martinesi. Mm -hmm. Most likely butchering the name, you know, apologies for that, but... Marcelo Martinez, um, I think that's correct, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, he's mostly known for short films and documentaries. That's like... That, that's where his background is on. Uh, three, three documentary movies, the rest of them are shorts. Mm -hmm. So the Harrises would be his, his feature film, the first full-length movie that he has done. So it's, it's not really... It's not a director who hasn't done anything before, but it is a first-time feature film director. Mm -hmm. And... I, I do agree with you. It's it's a really good job. O altogether, even as a film, it's, it's a really good job. And I would say it's a remarkable job knowing that, we are, once again, we are dealing with, you know, first-time feature film director who mm -hmm. is working with first-time actors. Yeah, quite astonishing. I'm gonna keep this guy on my radar if I can. I was expecting this film to be quite of a bore. I was expecting this, this to be something really deeply emotional, but on a kind of a chick flick level that I would really not care for. But this was a good movie. I, I will give it that that much. Uh, again, I think it has pretty good cinematography and audio design. Really, frankly, all around is a surprisingly great, great filmmaking from a first timer. Well, in the feature film sense. And... Uh, it's hard to say if he incorporated some of his documentary film skills into this feature film, for sure, yeah. Maybe it's those intimate shots with the blurred background of the characters who are kind of studying their faces. Maybe it's those repeating angles in the car, holding the shot for a long time. Maybe also in documentary filmmaking you pay a lot of attention to sounds or singular sounds, just carrying one scene with just a really few simple simple kind of audio tracks going in the in the background. I don't know, but uh, yeah, that might make, might, might make sense. Yeah, I too would state that you can kind of see the, the documentary background here. It's 
kind of muddled because, well, the, the cinematic language of the movie is, well, very much the cinem- cinematic language of, of European, you know, mm. art, drama, film scene. Like, I, I, I said it be- before, there's a lot here that you could just, you know, take, take, uh, take directly and just impl- put it into into a French setting and you would have a French drama movie. That also partly goes to, to cinematography. But I also kind of do... I, I do claim that you can see the documentary background of the director in, in kind of the way how, especially inside the car, the camera stays very close. Mm-hmm. To the characters. And in the way how the camera repeatedly frames the one talking in 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 the image. So like the image focuses on whoever is actually saying the uh, saying the line at any given time. And I there's a level of of a ground level control here that I can believe is is stemming from the document uh, is stemming from the documentaristic background of the filmmaker. Yeah. Well, speaking of in, in story terms, there seems to be also one uh, kind of curious scene where Jella goes to the prison to see Chiki or Chiquita, right? And Chiki goes to shower and then Jella sees this one person who is behind the bars. She refuses to open the the bars for her so this seems to be suggesting maybe there was a relationship going on between these two inmates but why is she so adamant to get in so badly at this moment Uh, i'm not sure what was supposed to be the message here but seems to be that uh, there has been some relationships going on behind their backs all the time yeah i I didn't get the get this image from the film itself, but I read it on online that what's supposed to go on, you know, be, between the, the the chemistry of these characters would be that uh, while Chiquita is in in jail, Chela starts to fear that Chiquita is making new romantic ties with other inmates inside the prison and like i said i did not personally get that feeling or or picture a picture when i was when i watched the movie but this is what what the the wise voices of the internet knew to tell me that this is something (laughs) this is supposed to be one of those those below surface tensions that start to develop between chela and chiquita so perhaps the shower scene Altogether, the, the the scenes between Cello and Chiquita inside the prison premises, I'm I'm guessing that that's what they were driving at. Like they were they were trying to show you Cello's growing suspicions and worry that Chiquita is paying a bit too close of an eye to some of her fellow inmates in sexual and romantic sense. Mm, perhaps, perhaps. Well, sharing of cigarettes can hardly be anything romantic or sexual, but there's a couple of these scenes I, I don't where... know, there's, there's a whole tradition of 
American movies from 30s and 40s where se- sharing a cigarette was, well, it, it was the first spark of a blossoming romance and it was a highly <laughs> sensual affair. Well, yeah. Certainly there were many scenes where there were these new people that she had met and she was telling all about them and how they were treating her and what, what kind of observations she had had inside the cell. Well, frankly, what else can she do? But yeah, I, I can see what that movie might be telling me. I didn't really get that very strongly that it was trying to hint in that way. And um, frankly, there may have been a couple of those under the surface things going through at least two of these tonight's movies, Seven Boxes and The Heiress, the where I wasn't really registering what it was telling me. Yeah, I was, on my end, I was paying too much of an attention, or once again, to the fuck all the capitalists theme. Is that really strong here? Did you, when going, going into this, okay, it's these rich guys and the rich, uh, poor, poor people. It's it's not as strong as it was in Seven Boxes, and not even as strong as it was in The Code Seekers. But I, I do think that it still is a theme in the movie. Like, the whole, whole crisis that these people have, the whole Chela Chiquita situation, it, it starts from the point where, once again, they don't have money. Mm-hmm. That they have, they have appearances to be uphold. They obviously, their past is is with the money. That they have been rich, or they are coming from rich families, or mm-hmm. something like that. But they come from surroundings where certain type of appearance is mandatory. You have to live big. You have to have nice paintings, you have to have expensive silverware, your, you have to have your, your crystal glasses. That's, you know, all your rich friends expect that you have, have those things. And obviously, you know, Chiquita and Salab, they have fallen in some rough times. The money has stopped flowing in, and if there has been some inheritance, it has already been spent. They are kind of broke, is what I'm saying. But they still want to keep up those appearances, which leads them to kind of secretly and extremely shamefully setting off, you know, different parts of their their, their house or, you know, the stuff they have. They sell a painting here. They sell a kitchen table there. They sell the silverware. And this is something that they both especially Sela is mm-hmm. is ashamed of she hides in the sh- shadows while the while the shoppers show up hesitant to show her face to them because you know admitting that would admit that you are no longer rich and then Chiquita goes to goes to jail because apparently I and this is how I took it in order to keep up the appearances she has tried to to, you know, play a small financial hoax. She has tried to to get herself a bank loan that she really, you know, couldn't have gotten. So she has tried to mislead the bank in order to get the loan. Mm. Once again, has tried to do a small criminal act in order to get more money so that they can, you know, 
keep up the, the appearances of the rich people. And but mm. once Chiquita goes to jail, jail all of a sudden Chela has to take up the job, has to start to drive the car, and once again she is kind of ashamed of doing this. She mm-hmm. kind of gets gets into it more and more as the film goes on, but her initial reaction to being this this kind of what essentially is a glorified cab driver is something like she's not she's not really happy about it. She's once again she's ashamed. When her first client, the neighbor's lady, is offering her some money for the gas expenses, she's kind of refusing to take them. It's not because she wouldn't need them. Once again, this is a lady who is selling her own silverware because she is broke, but now she's refusing to take some cash. Because once again, that would make her a taxi driver. And that's a poor people's shit. But... As she gets more into the whole taxi driver thing, as as her financial situation kind of gets a little bit better, at least good enough that they can still keep the household help. They are broke, but they need a goddamn maid for some re- Because simply for the reason that, you know, they are rich and rich people can't live without their maids. So, you know, you have to have that running expense, I guess. But she gets financially secure enough to keep them made. And as a result, what does she do? She completely starts to now, you know, mistreat Chiquita, does not show up to the meetings. If she does, she's kind of anxious to get the fuck out. Chiquita is in, in prison where amidst with all the other poor people. And at the, at the very end of the movie, she no longer even, you know, remembers what is the visitation day. Completely yeah. forgets even that. Her friend, Shalas Lover, for 30 years is in prison and you forget the goddamn visitation date. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. And then once Chiquita gets out of the prison, well, at this point, Shalas has already kind of found the idea that she has her own freedom and her own new set of, you know, social circles. So it's not a... So she does not warmly welcome Chiquita back. Instead, what, what she does is she apparently steals Chiquita's car and just drives yeah. it off to somewhere and credits. Yeah, yeah. yeah very in- interesting. What about kind of a crush for the character that she was waiting on to Angie to come back but then it's actually just Chiquita and you can just see the kind of a pain and confusion and letdown in her eyes kind of a nice moment there she also builds a kind of very nice relationship with the with the maid party there is one scene in particular which was nice and kind of channels to you that that Chela is starting to become more and more perhaps understanding towards the poor people. That's a really bad way to say it, but they kind of level there. They they see these two girls, two women who are there to possibly buy the silverware or some other stuff. There are many moments where in the story there are people who are coming to the house and they are maybe potentially buyers for something, but then every time uh, Chela 
or the maid has to say that no, that is not for sale. No, that is not for sale. No, that is not for sale. So they still want to keep up the appearances, like you said, but they want to cling on to something that has sentimental value or just will enable them to keep up the appearances. And <laughs> in this one scene, they they are just looking the maid and the chela are just looking at each each other when the when the woman who are there to buy things they ask some kind of silly questions about the whole process what they can have and what they can have i can't remember it any it exactly but yeah great moments like that connection between the characters wonderful characters throughout all of these three films by the way and um yeah what else to say about the heiresses i don't really know if there is that much ground to cover anymore with the film I, I've I've ranted about capitalism for nine years once again, for, also for this segment, <laughs> and we have we have praised the the actors, the direction, and the camera work. But what do you think when a woman betrays? Let's put it in simple terms. If a woman betrays in a movie, is it this is a bad word? Maybe I just made it up. But em, is it empathizable? Should you empathize? Should you? consider all the options maybe there is some good reason a moral reason for doing that do you think there's something like this in this movie is it acceptable what she did they did perhaps uh, kind of a lot to unpack there <laughs> but let's try that's a complicated question that there's a lot of questions that that are in uh, asked at the same time when it comes to to cheating altogether, uh, we as a society we see it very black and white situation. The cheater obviously is at wrong, and the one being being cheated upon is the helpless victim. I personally don't believe that any situation of cheating is that simple and that black and white. There, there's a lot personal and psychological things that goes into the act of cheating. And emotional misunderstandings. Yeah, that too. It does not necessarily make the act of cheating right, not necessarily acceptable, not necessarily even forgivable. But I do say that the the one doing the cheating in relationship, it he or she is not automatically some type of a great Satan, like we usually want to perceive them as, if that makes any sense. Like that, there, aren't, there are nuances, there are many sides to, to the act. Is it... Does, the, does this film kinda downplay the fact? Does it wants, want you to to emphasize with, well, what essentially is Chela, if not actually doing the act, at least partly fantasizing about cheating. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, Chela never does anything physical, and I, I'm on the camp that if you don't do the act, you know, you can have the casual thought. Like, mind does what it does, you can't really control it, heart says what it says. You can't have an absolute control over them. You can have control over your actions, but not necessarily an occasional idea. Yeah, you can still you can still realize what those thoughts are 
And maybe you, yeah. you you have to realize where where to pull the brakes, even emotionally. Yeah, and I I got the feeling that Chela kinda pulls the brakes here. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you Chela could kind of cheat herself into thinking that this is still kind of okay. This is just a girl that I met that I kind of like. I like her as a friend. It's not, of course, true at all, really. But she realizes that it's going too far. Yeah. Then again, does cinema altogether kind of have this idea that if if it's a woman doing the cheating, be it, you know, a homosexual or, or a heterosexual relationship, should are movies in general portraying the, the cheating woman in, in a softer light than a cheating male? In my opinion, yeah. Yeah. Uh, usually, especially dramas, if if you have the situation where a woman character is doing the cheating, it's usually it's it's being shown very sympathetically. Like you're you're showing the reasoning behind the act. Yeah. You're you're supposed to understand why this happened, and and through understanding, perhaps even accept and sympathize with the act of cheating. When it's man doing the cheating, more or less often than not, it's, you know, the a dude is just an asshole and you better dump his sorry ass as fast as you can. What's the end of the world film that we watched from Norway? Ah, uh, the worst person in the world. The worst person in the world. There we are kind of dealing with the same themes, that there's a lady who just lived this, lived this crisscrossing life and changes, changes the man every time she decides that she's had enough. Yeah. And I'm not fully on board with that trend. Like I'm I'm not really championing the idea that if every like of course you can have a movie that that shows the act of cheating and ask for sympathy towards the the, the cheater. That's okay, but I'm I do kind of feel that the current trend where every single time if woman cheats on relationship in a in a in a movie it's always somehow sympathetic and acceptable behavior i kind of do think that that's that's a that's a harmful trend or at least it's a trend that i'm kind of tired of seeing hmm. at the same time i kind of understand why that is happening like to i i see it as a result as a counter action to the way how male characters have acted in movies for you know couple of decades now mm-hmm. like we we had the long tradition of of James Bonds of Indiana Jones you name it male mm-hmm. characters who constantly you know has casual sex all over the place no matter are they relationship or are they not in relationship or what 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 the hell their status is Indiana Jones slept with what a 15 year old student <laughs> in 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 the background story of of Raiders of the Lost Ark right and that was supposed to be okay but that has been kind of the, the trend with male characters for, for you know, for a really long time in cinema. So I kind of see that the current trend of female cheaters being okay, just as a counter-reaction to this. I don't really accept it. I, I do think that 
we should kind of move on. We would, should move past that trend and just kind of admit that cheating, even though sometimes understandable and even though at times, you know, fine, make a movie that acts asks sympathy for the act, but it shouldn't be okayed so wildly as it currently is. Yeah, this is Especially all... with this diatomy of cheaters in, in cinema. But I can kind of understand why we are in this situation. Yeah, it's a multi-layered question. And there's also, for example, a level that usually when a female quote-unquote cheats or leaves a, a relationship secretly perhaps is because the the male character of the relationship is a complete asshole but not always but in many cases the male character is some kind of a huge monster who has done something horribly wrong is is beating up women or whatever the case totally fair depiction of men mind you <laughs> but i'm just saying that there's been that kind of a depiction where it's understandable and then, then then there is this other depiction where it seems to be a leveled relationship uh, they seem to be liking each other but then the woman just decides okay not no more because i have this really complicated drama in my head yeah and a good example of this and and where where this one is going would be i don't know if you've seen like like hollywood had this this female actress meg ryan mm. Whole bunch of romantic comedies during mm. her heyday, and whole bunch of those romantic comedies actually had the plotline where McRyan is already in relationship, starts to think about you know starting a new relationship with another guy, meaning that she has to to break up her current re- relationship, obviously. obviously, and you know then you have the breakup scene, mm. and typically in McRyan movies that breakup is shown as being extremely healthy and actually what both sides really wanted. The dude is kicked out of the door and and he just goes with a merry smile on his face, gets in the cab and just drives off the movie const- uh, completely. Hmm. That was like Mac Ryan a relationship breakup template that got repeated in, in so many Mac Ryan romantic comedies. <laughs> So that's also like like you you talked about the the way when when the level he, when when the woman walks out of the level headed relationship. So there there you have you know that trope being played out to a point of a cliche simply in in the career of one female actor like this. If you would have a subgenre of Meg Ryan movies, you would have that template playing on constantly. When woman breaks up the, the relationship, when she's the one who decides that, yeah, we have run our course, then the act is, is healthy, and, you know, it's what them dude also wanted, obviously. He just didn't know it yet. Hmm. Absolutely, Henrik. And would it be the quickies? Yeah. Special mention for an actor goes to this. The special mention for an actor goes to, at least from my end, to Anna Prun, who played Cella in the Heresies. Absolutely valid. <clears throat> I was thinking about that too, but could 
go for many people in these movies, frankly. I will just throw the dice. Let's give it to newcomer Tomas Arredondo, just leading the goddamn The Gold Seekers from beginning to end as his first goddamn movie. Bring to attention some very small role in the film that you found somehow worth highlighting for whatever reason could be whatever. I really don't have anything solid to offer here. I go with, I don't know, chopped off woman's head in seven boxes. Pretty great performance. <laughs> well, 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 that's a tough one to beat. Let's say that I will give it to... I will... Let's just... Give some hands for the prostitute performances in general. What resonated with you the most or the least? Um, for me, it was... There's a certain level of, of great in, in these movies. And in a lack of a better word... And this, this is bad, but there's a, there's a level of, of poor... Poorness... In, in these movies, in a, in a down-to-earth kind of way. So from my end, that's that's what resonated with more me the most. Hmm. For me, it's the, the character. Character, 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 character. Even if they might be over the top, I think we have really strong characters in all of these three films. Fun to watch, different, engaging, solid work on that front in all of them. Absolutely. In one adjective, how would you describe these films? My adjective would be carefully borrowing-esque. <laughs> all all, all in, in one word, no sentences. And I hope it's an adjective. Um, my, my, my reason is, and this is more case with the code seekers really and, and, and heresies than, than with seven boxes, but like we talked about, there is a level, uh, there's there's a kind of an essence of of American and and French movies, especially in in these two films. They they kind of borrow some elements, some some essence from those countries. Not saying it's a bad thing, and I I I'm not like making a claim that they they copy or steal. Like the leading word here was was carefully. Hmm. I would say, uh, I will say thoughtful, and there's a lot of love that has been put into these films, that is like oozing out there. Not always the most original ideas, and that's okay. Just really a uh, labor of love was happening happening in all three films. Yeah, Paraguay, like you stated in in the introduction, is a country that does not really have a booming film industry, which also means that unlike with Hollywood, movies in Paraguay really ain't like this this mega business where you really get in for the money. So if you become a film ma- maker in Paraguay, you know, a certain level of, of passion and love for the sport is needed. And it, it kind of shows. Yeah, kind of like when you make your first film of a trilogy or a franchise. The first one is the kind of labor of you maybe accept the film to make at least enough money to feed your children, <laughs> and but then it overblows and your heart is just not in it anymore. Yeah, and then, then you tie it up with a surprisingly good meta film and criticism of the franchise. 
and it added fanbase itself, like it was case in the, the newest Halloween trilogy. Yeah. Do you think these films have any staying power legacy? Oh, that's a that's a tricky one. Uh, like I, like mentioned, Paraguay does not have a huge film industry, and every movie that gets made kind of feeds into the chance of film industry someday being born. So that someday there there is like this this higher idea of a Paraguayan cinema, and I do think that. When it comes to that goal, yes, these films will have a legacy, at least in Paraguay. However, when it comes to international legacy, that unfortunately I can't promise. The problem there is perhaps the the competition from US, the competition from France that can limit kinda exactly how interesting people will find find these movies out to be and it may cause these movies like the international legacy but if someday Paraguay actually does have a booming film industry and they have their for example their own version of Hollywood I do think that at this at that point you know these films will be looked back upon as one of the 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 first commerce upon which you know the the further Paraguayan industry then would would have been built upon. Yeah, sadly it seems that within Paraguay one does not simply make a film and to this day the yeah the Gold Seekers is the last latest movie that the directing duo Juan Carlos Maneglia and Dana Shembori have have put out. So it might take a few couple of years before we get another one from from these greats, but. If someday these guys or whoever it will be, the Paraguayan next star of their cinema land, it, when Paraguay, if Paraguay ever breaks into the truly big leagues, yeah, sure, I, th- I think we will go back and look at the kind of the foundations or the kind of building blocks or, or something that started the whole <laughs> Paraguayan film craze and go and watch Seven Boxes. Why not? Yeah, and if you are Paraguay itself and you're looking at like how to kickstart the film industry. You can, you are always free to contact the two Finns. We can, yeah. we are happy to come there and you know help you out to to start a proper film industry and get it off the ground. Let's make Paraguayan Hollywood happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can give you some some great shots with an artsy, blurry background on them. <laughs> I, I can I can give you some blurry shots with some background in it. <laughs> <laughs> Put the films in order of preference. Uh, from my end, the lineup is seven boxes, and after that, it gets a bit tricky. But the follow-up would be the Heresies and the Gold Seekers on the third place. Not meaning to say that the Gold Seekers is is a bad movie in any way. Before I forget to ask about it, the Gold Seekers, the ending is. Uh... A little unconventional, ends to a brick wall. In, in a sense, everything has had been already done. Perhaps more could be could have been shown. Maybe the kind of the last enthusiastic moment when they actually get to have the money, if they ever get to, in fact, get to have the money. What do you think about the ending of the film? Did it satisfy you, or it was like I'm okay? It did satisfy me 
though I do have to admit, it's not the traditional way to end the movie. It kind of ends the movie, the movie ends kind of in, in the middle of the proceedings. They do identify where the money is at, or where, where the diamonds are at, and they realize that, you know, they are not in, in any present danger, the granny still has them, but it also, the movie ends in the middle of the action. I don't feel that the movie needed to go any longer than it did, like it was a fine place to end the movie, but once again, to harken back into your national treasures, the, the typical fodder that we get into this lost treasure adventure genre, the usual way to, to end it, the way how lost national treasure movies end is they find the treasure, they can come back, get back from from the adventure, and then they are lazily lazily hang hang around in some location. Usually, the main character's mansion, and they are just kind of like, "Oh boy, that was a crazy adventure." <laughs> Somebody's. It sure was. I wonder what these letters mean, and then they start to open the sequel page letter or something yeah. like that. End credits. Yeah. Yeah, I felt a little underwhelmed by the by the ending because I was looking for some kind of satisfaction for the characters that the release that okay, they reached some kind of a goal. But it's the same thing in Seven Boxes in a way. They don't get to the riches. There's more to be gained in the end of Seven Boxes. But yeah, but the films in order of preference. Seven Boxes, and like you, it gets a little tough here. I don't know. Like I said, I, I I I don't I don't really agree with some of the decisions in in, in the the heiresses. It's a little tricky one, but I do like a hell of a lot there. The performances. It's an interesting movie to follow. Great drama building. Fantastic cinematography and places. Whew. I don't know. I could even make it a tie. These are completely different kind kind of films. Ties have been made in in course of this podcast's history. Have I really? I don't think I've ever given a tie myself to anything. If but if memory ser- serves me correct, I I may have made a tie in, in at some point. Okay, okay. Gosh, good stuff here. I'm just gonna call it a tie, you know. But let's do it. Complete the sentence. You really know. You're watching some Paraguayan cinema when. When during your lazy car drive, you suddenly realize that we have nothing to lose but our chains. <laughs> you really know you're watching Paraguayan cinema when you have treasures and chandeliers and, and boxes full of body parts. Did you like these three films? I did, not equally. I had my obvious favorite and I did have... And and I did have my 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 little problems with with ha- the hairs and the code seekers, but yeah, I must admit I really did do like all of these movies. I'm really happy. I never really know what to expect with you, even though we're we've done over 150 plus podcast episodes. I never know exactly what's gonna gonna happen in these recordings. It, 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 it's the ominous shadow of the Hubo episode once again looming behind. Uh, 
one of those examples. Um, I absolutely did like all of these films. I absolutely did some more th than others. I've got not nothing really to add beyond that. Yeah, I had fun. I had some real real fun. It's been a while maybe since I've had a lot of fun and refreshing a cinema time here in the lab. Would you watch these films again? I most likely I uh, I will definitely check out Seven Boxes again at some some date. Perhaps even show it to others. Hmm. And most likely I I will also show Gold Seekers to someone. When it comes to heresies, I'm not entirely certain if I will check that one out again. It's not a bad film, but at the same time, it's a, it's a movie that can more easily be, you know, buried under your French dramas, your Michael Haneke movies, etc. You know, the, the watch list of movies that you kind of still have to go through. And it might be that, you know, the hair is just unfortunately gets beneath that list. Yeah, even all its art artistic merits aside, maybe we've seen it many times before. Although, yeah, we did mention some, some uh, benefits that the movie does have. This was one of the few times in the, in the podcast, at least in recent memory, where I was like watching these films, some of them more or less for the second time. And I was like, hey, maybe I should actually, these were so much fun that I would like to even watch this for the third time with, with my boyfriend. And yeah, never really had that kind of thoughts because usually we get stuck into the, <laughs> to the artsy and the weird but these are fun for the whole family. Would you recommend the Gold Seekers, the Aerises, and Seven Boxes? I most definitely will recommend Seven Boxes. I do recommend the Aerises, even though most likely I won't be checking it out for a second time. But I, much like you know, your other drama films, if if you like drama movies. If nothing else, the Harris's works as a as a one-time watch, I would say. Mm. And I'm giving the Code Seekers a recommendation with some reservations. It's I, I once again I highlight it's not a bad movie. And there really is like I, I do think that you should check out Code Seekers. What you may end up doing while Watching it, it might be doing the same thing that I did, which, you know, is kind of a mistake, but we can't help ourselves, which is that you start to compare it to, you know, the other treasure-seeking adventure movies. And at that point, you know, you may draw the unfortunate comparison to the budgets and how this would have been shot that way in National Treasure and how, how there would have been more you know, sets and locations and CGI and what have you. And it may kind of shadow your your watching experience. Kind of like it did for me. But if that happens, it's unfortunate. It is 
bit unfair towards the movie, I admit. But at the same time, you know, the, the movie chose its own genre. I didn't force it to, to make code-seeking movie. And the movie did its decision completely knowingly. I do maintain that it's a, it's a consistent decision made by the film and it's made in order to appeal a larger audience. Perhaps even the international market and when you approach the international market you obviously, you know, you tr- will draw comparison to other international movies. Just unavoidable, even though perhaps in this case a bit unfortunate. But even with that, you know, that's a risk that may loom behind your your viewing experience of the Code Seekers. But I still do recommend that you check the film out. There you go. I would recommend all three of them. I'm a little bit on 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 the edge with the heiresses. I you can definitely whatever you think about the Gold Seekers, you can have a whole lot of fun with that film. I'm sure. Whether you're kind of a some reviewer who has been reviewing films, a critic for several years, you may have grown a little. <laughs> tired of the job and it's sometimes feel a little soul crushing to go through <laughs> movies that just seem to <laughs> repeat <laughs> repeat themselves over and over and over where have i seen this movie before oh it's just a reincarnation of the same stuff but recommendation for all three even though i had all of that whining about the heiresses still worth a watch absolutely and uh I guess that's kind of the meat and chunk of this episode. Dear listener, would you recommend these films in case you can find them? If you have access to Amazon and its movie library, Amazon Prime that is accessible in its full form for the Americans out there, perhaps for the Canadians as well. I think you can find at least a couple of these movies there. For the rest of us, <laughs> good luck. But you know that there are ways. There are there. There's a will, and then there's a way. And Henrik, speaking of will and way, uh, these are in no way related to each other in any any way. But where do you want to go next? Would you like as a topic for the next episode, cancer, Uruguay, or pig fucking? <laughs> I already know where the pig fucking is going. <laughs> we are we are not taking that road. Uh, I I like to to stay with with happy themes and happy thoughts. Seeing how I'm I myself am I'm a positively thinking happy person with with no problem you know psychological problems at all. So I choose cancer. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, is this the? This is gonna be some bad karma for us. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I <laughs> was just the perfect subject for us too. But I've thought it for, about it for a while. There's a couple of really strong movies about cancer. It's it's just <laughs> it's a topic that <laughs> we usually want to avoid as people. But perhaps because of particularly this reason that we want to avoid it, maybe we should just face it dead on and find out how we would feel about it in movie form. 
Yeah, so, you know, in the next episode, cancer. We are going to look at it. <laughs> it's not, it's not going to be even, even, even films. We are just going to, you know, find a cancer tumor somewhere and just look at it for five hours. And then <laughs> talk about our experience. <laughs> oh, but something happy to the end of this episode. I, I learned some cult- cultural things. There are two food items that you could check out that are Paraguayan. For example, chimichurri. It uh, includes parsley and uh, it's a kind of a sauce that you use for, for, for your meat delicacies. There's also something called terere. It's a yerba mate, a drink that the Paraguayans are apparently very happy about. Uh, it, uh, it's an infusion of yerba mate prepared with cold water. Then there's a lot of ice and however you pronounce that pohanyana, which is medicinal herbs. But yeah, perhaps we should try them at some point. That's that. Any thoughts before we throw our lab coats into the empty void made by the heart of an affluent lesbian? Well, you had it me at, at the lesbian. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Cancer uh, in a fortnight, and we would like to invite you to continue this conversation with us online, <laughs> and we'll hope to see. <laughs> which which we'll... will also give you cancer. Ah, <laughs> uh, I can't anymore. <laughs> our 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 place in in hell is certain. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for joining us. See you in a fortnight. Oh, until then. Se nyt liian matalalla. Todanpa laittaa vähän lisää volyymiä vieläkin. Tillin tallin. Okei. Paraguau. Kaikelle pitää pystyä nauraa vähän.